Welcome to Tacoma Arts Live's podcast series, Reflections of Tacoma, where we will examine key events, people, and places in the history of the South Sound and the echoes of their impact both in our own time and how they reach out and affect our region to this day. Today's episode is the continuation of our conversation with Mara Lee and Greg Tambara about Japanese incarceration during World War II and the Japanese experience in Tacoma at that time. The first part of this conversation is already available to download wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Tacoma Creates, and today's partner, the Asian Pacific Cultural Center, with special thanks to the Tacoma Public Library Northwest Room and On Purpose Recording. Uh, so I want to shift a little bit. Uh, your father uh, was in the service. Can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, about his time serving and perhaps like where he was at and some of? Well, I'll start here. Um, you know, as it, that what what I recall is that uh, he was um, at the University of Southern California in uh, pharmacy school. So I know that. You know Peds Northwest, and you know him as a pediatrician. Well, originally he was a pharmacist, mm-hmm. and uh, finished uh, was in his I think his second or last year of uh, school down at USC, and uh, and then World War II began, and so because of the um, um, restrictions on Japanese on the West Coast, he had to leave USC and transfer to the University of uh, Idaho and actually finished his uh, pharmacy training in at the University of Idaho. Unfortunately, that was 1943, and no one would hire a Japanese pharmacist. So he ended up uh, returning to uh, um, Heart Mountain uh, Internment Center uh, to join his mother and his sister there. And uh, because he had trained as a pharmacist, he worked in the, in the uh, hospital there as a pharmacist. And that actually is how he met my mother was, uh, in, uh, the Heart Mountain, uh, relocation center. So he, I believe that, uh, um, you know, he, uh, ends up getting drafted in the U S military and, um, is uh, because he has some, uh, uh, pharmacy training. He is scheduled to be a, uh, a combat medic in the, uh, uh, 442nd Special Combat uh, Team, which was a segregated Japanese-American combat team that was fighting in uh, Italy and France. And so uh, he gets trained as a combat medic. Um, he's getting ready to go, and the war in uh, in Europe ends. And so they said, well, we don't need you as a combat medic, so we're going to retrain you in counterintelligence and because he's bilingual. And... Uh, so he uh, goes into a counterintelligence work, and they send him to Nagasaki. And so he is in Nagasaki, Japan, during the uh, um, U.S. occupation of Japan shortly after they drop the uh, atomic bomb. And so there is nothing there when he's there. Um, so he gets, out of, he gets out of the Army in 1946 and ends up uh, being able to get into medical school using the GI Bill and working as a pharmacist. So he finishes medical school, uh, does his uh, internship and residency in Seattle, and uh, as it turns out, can't get a job. And so he ends up uh, coming to Tacoma and uh, beginning a, uh, 
a, a what we what they used to call a solo practice. So basically, used to be doctors and little offices, uh, kind of uh, working on on their own. Um, so he started in the hilltop, in a group of small brick buildings up on the hilltop, and um, <clears throat> start, the way the story goes is that uh, my mother and my father were living in the Japanese language school in the teacher's quarters at that time. And he started his medical practice and the phone would ring down at the, at the, at our home. And then he'd run up the hill to see the patients. And then uh, when he got done with that patient, he'd come back, hang out at the, uh, hang out at home until the phone rang again. Then he'd run back up and, and, uh, um, see a patient. So that's how he kind of started. It's like one patient at a time. And, uh, eventually, um, ended up having the opportunity to serve a whole bunch of people as their pediatrician. Um, and along the way, along the way, yes, he had a lot of difficulties, uh, kind of getting established. I think that, uh, he may have been one of the only, um, Japanese American or even Asian physicians in town. I think that uh, most of the physicians were white males. Um, he, uh, um, you know, had his, uh, decided to uh, um, live, uh, live in a home that he wanted to build on Yakima Avenue. And as I understand from one of the neighbors, longtime neighbors there, there was a petition to stop him from, from building that home. Um, and so that was difficult. I think he probably was one of the first uh, uh, people of color to have the opportunity to play tennis mm-hmm. down at the Tacoma Lawn Tennis Club. Oh, wow. And so along the way, there were people that supported him also. But uh, it was uh, an uphill climb, I think, for him. And uh, I think one of the things that I really appreciate about him is that he always believed that it was the people that, that helped him do what he really thought was important that was was what gave him the opportunity to uh, not only be a physician, but also do some things in the community that he wanted to do. Yeah, and it's so interesting because, you know, so much injustice, right, in his story. And at the same time, what's so strange is that it's because he went into the camps that Greg our sisters and me are here today because that's where he met our mom. And it was in just that, you know, his mom and his sister are in the camps imprisoned and he's drafted to serve in the war. But because he's drafted, he gets the GI bill that allows him to become a pediatrician. And just because of all those experiences, that's just the reason why he was in Tacoma. Otherwise, he would have been probably in L.A. So it's just it's just interesting how things work out. Yeah. You know, I I was going to say lucky us, but it feels unfair to say that. Oh, yeah. Um, No, that's okay. But, you know, like it's it's we talked about it briefly before we sat down um, about how it's always, you know, I'm just always interested in hearing how people end up in Tacoma. You know, I I feel like Tacoma really is a, a unique place and um there are definitely things in in our history and our our present that are not you know they're not ideal um they're not indicative of the potential we have as a community um but i've always even even knowing 
that this city has potential to be a dark place. I know that there's a lot of really beautiful things that happen here and a lot of unique and special people. And I, I, I feel that your father was one of those people. So. Oh, thank you. Well, and thank I think, you. yeah, and I think it goes hand in hand, right? The darkest things can bring out the best in people at times, right? Mm -hmm. So they go together, which is just odd, but that's what I've noticed at least in our family's story. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, the other thing that I think about as we're talking here is things seem to turn on moments. Okay, they turn on moments. And I, I, I remember a story that my father used to tell me all the time about how when he first saw my mother. So the, uh, my mother and her family were originally uh, interned in a place called Tule Lake. And through a series of circumstances, they needed, to, uh, uh, they needed to move many of the people that were in Tule Lake to other camps because uh, they decided to concentrate those people that... Uh, would not serve in the U.S. military at Tule, Tule Lake, or people who uh, would not renounce their their uh, their allegiance to the Emperor of Japan. So, um, my mother and her uh, two sisters and her mom end up uh, uh, leaving um, Tule Lake, and the Tacoma community is really spread out mm -hmm. to to a variety of different camps. So that's a that's a moment there. So whoever's decision that was. That was a moment. But my father tells a story. He says that he hears a rumor. He's in Heart Mountain that a bunch of people from another camp are coming in. And so he, he says that he scrambles up with a bunch of guys up to the top of a little mound there because they're going to check them out. And uh, that's, where they, that's where he sees my mom for the first time. And uh, so as Marilee was saying, if he had not met my mom, that would it would I mean we wouldn't be talking to you here. Yeah. As a result of, of that, uh, they go on one date while while they were in uh, in uh, Heart Mountain, and they go to a movie. We were talking about the Grand earlier, mm -hmm. so they go to a movie in a barracks that's been converted into a uh, a movie theater, and then he ends up leaving leaving the camp. So they they don't see each other, and he writes her letters on a regular basis. Um. So there are those moments. I think another moment I think about is when my father was uh, in, uh, I think it was Michigan State. Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota State um, University doing some work in, in their pharmacy there. There's a nurse there, a uh, Caucasian nurse. And uh, she gets to know my father and she tells him, you know, George, you really should go to medical school. That's a moment also. Yeah. Um, those moments where he can't get a job. As a pharmacist, so there's moments where he uh, he ends up, uh, um, you know, as Marilee was saying, getting drafted. Um, so there are those moments um, that I think about also. So things turn on a dime sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talked a bit um, about uh, just kind of what it's been, what it was like for your family after they, they came back and... Um, kind of this community wasn't here and we touched on it briefly, but is there anything else you wanted to share about kind of what it was like for them to come back and realize that, you know, Japantown wasn't there anymore or what they, you know, that community that they had been working so long to build? Well, I will mention that because people didn't have places to live um, because one, there was a, 
there was no housing. Two, there was discrimination. And three, people didn't have money. So people ended up living at the Tacoma Buddhist Temple, the Japanese language school. And when those places were filled up, they came and lived at um, our mother's childhood home. Mm. So we were talking earlier about how, you know, you're at camp and you're kind of having this imagining, wanting to go home. And I'm imagining that you're thinking about sleeping in your bed or maybe having a home cooked meal. But you do the right thing and because people have no place to live. So they had a family in every single room. And I remember our mom would say that when they were working down at the shop that they never ate at home. They'd always go, they would think there was one Chinese restaurant. They'd go and eat there. It's because there were so many people probably using the kitchen and I never thought about that. And Mm -hmm. she never talked about that. Yeah. So... Did you want to hear anything? Yeah, I um, it's probably not the homecoming that you would think. Yeah. It's another one of those. It's a hard start. Start. Um, yeah, very different. I, I remember growing up. There was one fellow. I think that uh, he may have been uh, somebody who boarded at my grandmother's house from those days, but uh, he was still there when I was growing up, and uh, didn't speak English. Um, so my experience with him was uh, kind of nonverbal. So, uh, you know, he he uh, spent time out in the garden um, working on things or, or uh, you know, putzing around the house. And we'd go hang out with him, but it was uh, pretty much nonverbal. And uh, so that, you know, those are some of the things that I recall that might have been left from from those early days. Yeah. Right. So if you're a first generation man um, and you're coming out of camp, you're probably like in your 60s, maybe 70s. No one's going to hire you. So the war experience, the, the concentration camp experience was especially hard on the first generation. And so, you know, yeah, we know of this man that lived at our grandmother dash aunt's home. And really, you know, now we're reflecting. It was a, a completely generous thing to do to have this man that couldn't get a job, was elderly, and stayed there until he pretty much died. So, you know, there's a deeper, richer story to many of these things that occur- that happened in our life that I think are just now more coming to light for us. Yeah. Um, can you you talk a little bit more about what it was like for you all as you were growing up? I'll, I, you know, I'll tell you a couple of things that come to my mind. Tended uh, Lowell Elm. Well, I, as Marilee was saying that I went to kindergarten at Central Central School, which was which is now Central Administration for School District Ten. Kind of interesting because I think I, I I had I had the opportunity not too long ago to spend some time with the school board, and they didn't realize that there was a school there, mm. at, at, and so uh, yeah, so I was there during kindergarten. My my parents ended up moving to the to the home that they lived in for for almost sixty years on Yakima Avenue, not too far from North Seventh Street, and I attended Lowell Elementary. And uh, at the time, I, I think Diane, uh, my 
younger sister and I, my next youngest sister and I, were the only people of color in, in the whole school. I'd, I can't remember going um, to, uh, I think that was the last couple of weeks of kindergarten at, at Lowell, and it felt really different. The uh, kindergarten I was in at, um, at Central School, I remember the first day there, um, and the thing I noticed was there weren't just Japanese people in the room. There were lots and lots of different people. And going to uh, Lowell Elementary, I noticed, well, there not only are not Japanese people, but they're all white people. And, uh, you know, that, uh, it's, it's, it's just one of those things that as a little kid, you really don't know what that is, but it just feels different. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, that was very much my experience through, through elementary school was uh, um, not really being conscious of the uh, whole internment thing, um, you know, Japanese-American thing, but knowing that I was different. And, uh, and then um, ended up going to, at that time, it was called Jason Lee uh, Junior High School, more diverse. And then by the time I got to the stadium, it was much more diverse. But... Um, it always was was that uh, there were very few, very few uh, um, Japanese Americans and very few uh, Asians. I think there was only one, one Chinese family that I ended up meeting at at, uh, at Jason Lee, and they had a little restaurant just down Sixth Avenue. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that was it. That was it for us, for me anyway. Yeah, I mean, I. Just, yeah, the same, pretty much the same experience as my brother. I'm just thinking about, you know, that down at the Tacoma Lawn Tennis Club, there people said that um, our father couldn't join. And so there were a few people, I think there were seven men or something that said that they're going to quit. They were, you know, kind of leaders in the community said that they would quit the club if they didn't allow George Tambera in. And so I think now reflecting back, I remember talking to my girlfriend who was a member at the club and she said, your family didn't do the barbecue down by the pool at night. My family was there all the time. I was like, yeah, it's funny. We never did that. And now I realized maybe my mom didn't know who was going to be down there. I don't know. But now the club is very welcoming. And I do want to add to that people make, I've heard this, that people assume that our father had money growing up. Our father grew up very poor. And because he was in LA, tennis was very accessible. And he found a broken racket and he taught himself tennis. And he kind of was a natural at it. And so that's how he got onto the USC team. But um, yeah, it's just, he really did well, I think, you know, with his life. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about, um, you, you gave us the story earlier about him running up the hill to the, his, you know, his solo office and going back home. Uh, will you talk a little bit more about the kind of the building of his practice and kind of how it, you know, grew into? Oh, let's see. What do I remember about that? I remember, um, it was kind of fun going to that little office that he had because he was he would always be in a white coat and there was always a stethoscope around his neck. 
And so I thought that was pretty cool. I thought th- I think the other thing that was really, really cool uh, is that uh, at 3 o'clock every day, if I was up there, he would take me down to the pharmacy that was, uh, I think that would have been on 11th Street, mm-hmm. okay? And he'd have a Cherry Coke every day. And I used to watch the pharmacist put together the Cherry Coke and get the carbonated water in there first. Then he put the syrup in, and then he put a good amount of cherry juice in there, and he put a cherry on top. My dad just, that was like part of his thing every day. Um, So I mentioned that because, uh, you know, medicine was very different in those days. Mm -hmm. Um, He had, I remember uh, uh, as he was going along, you know, he was able to bring on people to work with him. He had you know, some, some office assistants and, and, uh, and uh, a nurse that was there, but it was, it's nothing like what it is now. There, there were little, uh, little exam rooms. I think, I think he had exam room one, two, and then maybe three. Yeah. But I know there was one and two, very small. Um, and, uh, there were just people running around all over the place. Um, very busy each day, but I could tell that my father was having a lot of fun mm. because he really, really enjoyed medicine and really liked kids. Um, so that's kind of the early days. It, it was very different uh, as a, uh, when he was a solo practitioner. Um, he ended up uh, taking the garbage out himself. Uh, the uh, the uh, office staff. Everybody was wearing whites in those days. Uh, the nurses were had little hats on and, and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and everybody was wearing white uniforms. The other thing I remember is when I was in, I think, high school. And uh, he thought it would be good for me to have an employment experience. So he said, well, why don't you come and work at the office? And... Uh, um, this would be good for you, Greg. And so I go to the office, and I have a de- I got a desk, and I'm working on uh, on uh, some of the accounts that he has. The, the, one of the problems with the desk is it's in the same room my father's in, <laughs> and so I'm in there with my dad. Um, so so I'm thinking, well, I don't know if this is it feels like a real job, but anyway, so we're going through that. But one of the things that that comes away this is during the time when there was not a lot of uh, medical insurance. There was only one medical insurance opportunity, maybe two. So most people were not on medical insurance. Um, At that time, uh, I think an annual examination was $15 and a follow-up was $10. Wow. Okay. And on the little account cards, as I was going through them, I would see NC that would show up pretty often. And I'd see NC and NC, and finally I asked him, I said, okay, so what's NC stand for? And he says, because these are all entered in pencil. Everything's handwritten. Um, He said, that means no charge. And so he was, uh, um, in many cases, uh, not charging folks for for services because they couldn't pay. Yeah. Um, So there there was uh, that experience, I remember. I... You know, I remember every once in a while also somebody was in for a flu vaccine or something and they'd be chasing this person 
all over the office. They didn't want to get the shot. <laughs> that was kind of funny every once in a while. Um, so anyway, those were some of the early days. But it was, um, you know, no air conditioning. Um, days that I was there, the lobby, the, you know, he had this little tiny lobby with, uh, I think, about five or six chairs in it, um, just full. Uh, people sitting on each other's laps, and, and sometimes people waiting out out in the little courtyard out the door uh, to get in. And, and you know, his, his policy was, yeah, you need to have an appointment, but if you show up, I'll see you. <laughs> and so it was kind of like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, very different in those those early, early days. Yeah, so he had it so that if you were um, of the faith community, a leader in the faith community, like a minister or a rabbi, he never charged those folks. That was just kind of their training, I guess. And then um, our father also was very involved with this free clinic at Lister. This is before I was born. So my brother and my sisters would go and donate their time. His staff would go and donate their time to serve. And I always thought growing up that he was serving children only, but he was serving the entire family. And that later became community health care. Yeah. Yeah, I was, um, Marley, I think, called it volunteering. I don't know if it was volunteering. He just said, you're going with yeah. <laughs> we we like to call that being voluntold. Yeah, volu- it was voluntold, <laughs> but um, yeah, that that was an interesting. I think I, I, you know you, we were talking about uh, early days. Um, a story that he, that uh, he told me once was that in the early days of that little clinic on on Lister uh, at Lister Elementary on the stage there, they realized right away that he wasn't going to be able to handle all of the issues that that uh, came through the door. And that there were going to need to be some specialists that were involved. So, um, you know, along with the uh, Pierce County Medical Society, um, they they had a gathering of about fifty physicians at the um, what was then the gym up at the Tacoma Community House. So, the Community House is located on the hilltop. At that time, uh, I think the director was Bob Yamashita. And um, so, this is the late sixties. Those fifty. Uh, 50 uh, physicians got together up there, and my father and some other people made a pitch, and they agreed to see referrals from that little clinic at no charge. Yeah. And that's kind of how um, healthcare was in those days. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was like that. It was like that. Yeah, our father was very generous. So I did a, for my master's in public administration, I did a video project on his life. And I interviewed people and just some of the stories was just amazed. Like um, I was talking to the executive director of community health care and he said, you know, your dad was the one that, you know, their foster home, not foster homes, I can't remember, um, home, the home society. And they had a home for girls and a home for boys and dad would see all of them as patients Um, I heard from a community member that had a foster child and she said that even though his, he was full, he told her, I'd never turn away a foster child. Oh, that just warmed my heart. So, you know, things like that. And it's, you know, he was in a profession that it, you know, that kind of uh, giving back is so meaningful for people. Right. Yeah. Not only does it impact the community, but uh, you know, I think it has a profound impact on the person who is 
giving and um, and, you know, we talked about earlier kind of how there were th- things that you didn't need to be told overtly. Um, and I think also, you know, when you have parents, role models, mentors who are also leading by example in, you know, putting the community first and and thinking of other people and 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 care and, and what it can do and what it means to heal a community. And there are various ways to heal a community in your your dad was doing it in a much more uh, literal sense in some ways. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's very, you, there's just something to it when you have the chance to witness somebody who just cares. And, and, and I think that, you know, um, that has this impact to, you know, the same way that trauma is passed down. These examples of, of care, of, of healing, of love, of light, like those get passed down as well. And I, I think that, you know, um, it, it just has kind of a, you can't even, you can't put a number on it. You can't put it, can't quantify it in any way. It, it really has this kind of infinite impact. Um, so I feel like this is a good point where we're near the end of our time together. Um, is there anything, you know, that we've that we've spoken about today that you maybe want to share any further reflections on um, or, you know, just and just any final thoughts in general of um, your family, the, the impact of um, the choices of this community and how that's impacted you or your family or this community as a whole? Um, just, yeah, any final thoughts that you guys might want to share with us? Well, this is unrelated to what you just asked, but I do want to do a plug for oh, August A-okay. 3rd um, at the Grand Cinema, um, the Chinese Reconciliation Project Foundation contacted my brother and said that they're doing a series of uh, documentaries on different heritages in Tacoma, and they wanted to do one on the Japanese community. So Greg graciously led them my way because I'm writing this book. So we hope you can make it uh, August 3rd, which is a Monday at the Grand at 7 p.m. Awesome. That's going to be a great, great event. Yeah, looking forward to that big time. Um, Jamika, you know, I, I, I think uh, as I was coming down here and then and then uh, I was thinking about, because I figured that you were going to ask us for a last thought here. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I think this is what my last thought is, is that, you know, one of the things that my... Uh, my dad said uh, when he had an opera, he, we were at we were at some lunch and he was receiving um, some sort of uh, acknowledgement. I think it was from the Boys and Girls Club. But uh, one one of the things that he said was that um, he never thought things would turn out the way they have. And um, you know, you think about uh, him being born in in, in 1922 in uh, Portland. Um, to uh, immigrant uh, mother and father. The father's working in a lumber yard, uh, and the mother is uh, is uh, some. You know, I, I think that at one point she uh, was working as a typesetter in for a Japanese uh, Japanese newspaper. But you know, they're living in a hotel, and uh, he said that uh, you know he grew up during the during the depression, and he told me once he said uh, when he was a little kid. One of the things that he remembers, he's walking down an alley and he sees somebody who's passed away in the alley. 
And he said one of the things that was interesting to him was he thought, oh, well, that's just how things are. You know, I mean, they're tough. They're, they're really tough. And so to come from that to uh, having the opportunity to serve uh, um, the Washington State uh, Medical Society, Pierce County Medical Society, um, be able to play tennis at uh, the Tacoma Lawn Tennis Club, um, be able to uh, uh, be one of the folks that, that gets uh, um, Pediatrics Northwest started, um, has the honor of, uh, of uh, working with the United Way people for, for a long, long time, um, you know, get, uh, having a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of opportunities with community health care and putting together services that they're providing for, uh, for uh, people that are, that are uh, in need of medical care. Yeah, that's, you know, I don't know how you could be a person in the 20s or 30s and say, oh, you know, I think I'll just do this. Yeah. I, he, it's, so that was really cool. The other thing that I think about is along the way, there were people that reached out and helped him. Um, and he never forgot that. He always said that it was because um, people were willing to support him. Um, he was so thankful to the community health care folks because in 1968, still not that many people were interested in uh, Asian, Asian or Japanese American uh, a person, regardless of, of what they had done to that point in, in uh, participating in, in community events. Um, so going forward, I think, you know, in these times that we live, there are things that people can do, individuals can do to try and make things better in whether those be small things or large things. And I, I would hope that if you see something that you think is maybe not right or could be better, that you do something about it. They actually do something. So that's what I thought about on the way down here and in talking to you, Jamika. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I think that's a great message to leave it on, you know, do something. I think that's a, a great thing to live by. Um, so I, I really want to thank both of you for being here. Um, I just want to thank you both for sharing, you know, some really personal and, um, very hard things to share about uh, the experiences of your family, of your community, of our city. Um, and I, you know, even with that, I also thank you for sharing a lot of hope. I feel like I walked in here in one mood and it wasn't a bad mood. Um, and there was definitely potential for us to all feel really heavy leaving this conversation. Um, but I just appreciate that, like, like you kind of mentioned with your mother, um, I just feel there's optimism and I feel that, um, there's true love for the community that kind of radiates from both of you. And I just appreciate very much, um, the work that your father did in this community. Yeah. So, um, and the legacy that people have to follow. So I really appreciate you both for being here. And I just want to thank you, um, for, for your you, contribution. You're welcome. You're yeah, welcome. thank you, Jamaica. Yeah. I appreciate you. Yeah, this podcast. Um, so again, this brings us to the end of our podcast. Thank you, Mary Lee and Greg Tambara. Um, I would also like to thank our sponsor, Tacoma Creates, and today's partner, the Asian Pacific Cultural Center. With special thanks to the Tacoma Public Library Northwest Room and On Purpose Recording. 
Thank you for listening. And you can find all recordings online at TacomaArtsLive.org. This program was brought to you by On Purpose Recordings. Created and produced by Chris Blunt. Mixed and edited by Joff Gibbs.